One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is the former Director of Communications for Sony PlayStation Europe and the current PR Director for NetEase Games. After graduating from the University of Exeter, he joined Dennis Publishing, where he worked as deputy editor of Your Sinclair, before becoming the game's correspondent for News International's Today newspaper. In 1992, he led, uh, left journalism for the world of PR, assuming the role of head of European PR for Electronic Arts, where he promoted the launches of the earliest FIFA and Madden titles. Then, in April 2000, my guest joined Sony for the launch of the PlayStation 2. He remained at PlayStation for 19 years, witnessing the launch of four major consoles, dealing with tabloid crises before, in 2019, leaving to join NetEase, where, among other people, he looks after the legendary creators Suda51 and Toshihiro Nagoshi. Welcome, David Wilson. Thank you. Thank you. Look at that lovely intro, sir. Stay with us. Yeah, well, 
It's nice to see you. So I was checking out your uh, your LinkedIn page. It says that one of the first things it says is that you deal in crisis management. You've had a few of those over the years, I imagine, uh, working in PR. But I'd like to begin with perhaps the most notorious incident in Sony PlayStation PR history. The Daily Mail on the 1st of May 2007, the headline is Slaughter, Horror at Sony's Depraved Promotion Stunt with Decapitated Goat. Uh, the text reads that the corpse of the decapitated animal was the centrepiece of a party to celebrate the launch of the God of War 2 game for the company's PlayStation 2 console. Former Minister Keith Vaz, Labour MP for Leicester East, uh, said the slaughter of animals is not something that should be done to advertise a product. Uh, where, where were you when you heard the mail had this story? You know, I was actually at my friend's wedding. We were actually at the, um, I think it was a church. We were actually in the church at my friend's wedding on a Saturday morning when I got a call from the, the Daily Mail on my uh, mobile and had to leave the uh, ceremony briefly to, yeah, pick it up the, pick up the conversation. Uh, yes. Well, where do, you want to, where do we start? What, what did they say to you then on this phone call? Who was calling well, you? Uh, it was probably one of those two people named on that article. Was it the Daily Mail? Yes, it was the Daily Mail. Yeah, I mean, here's the story, right? The, uh, I worked in the UK office at that point, and we had a European team that kind of like put together uh, cost-effective PR suggestions for trips and tours and things uh, for all the territories, including the UK, even though their team was based in the UK. And um, they put this, they posited the idea of doing this God of War launch in Greece, and it was going to be like themed like, you know, it was, you can see where it was going, right? It was based like um, I'm a celebrity and all that sort of thing, eating kangaroo's testicles and things. Right, right. So they were, had a series of challenges in this Greek setting where you would, for example, have to reach into a terrarium of snakes and get the key to get the, into the next room. Right. Then there were kind of like cut out barbarians you'd throw axes at, which were people from the game. And it culminated in this eating challenge which did involve a, a soup made from goat offal, which is apparently a traditional Greek dish consumed at some festival. Uh, all probably uh, provided meat, caterers had provided it. So right. it wasn't quite as... But probably where they fell down was they sent an invite out from their PR agency, yep. which sort of was in a similar theatrical theme to the event, said, you will reach into a still right. steaming goat court. I mean, we do have a yeah. picture here. Oh, my God. There is a... <laughs> This is the picture that the Daily Mail ran, and it, that does look like a dead goat to me. That is a dead goat. Yeah, they pixelated the goat, but not the lady's chest. That's funny, isn't it? That's the times we live in. I don't know. Anyway, um, that was a set dressing, and I was going to bring that magazine along with me. Actually, I have that uncensored copy I was going to bring along, because I thought, what podcasts are missing, Simon? Uh, visual aids. <laughs> yes. But uh, fortunately, yeah, you've, um, you've beaten me to it. I heard the proposal and I actually thought it sounds like a terrible idea and I'm not going to send any media at all from the UK. So we didn't even participate in this event, right, right. which I was assured was uh, totally humane and they did get a goat carcass, but we didn't participate and I was the only territory they haven't got upset about. Right. So well, the Daily Mail in the UK was the one that, yeah. So, so and the, the Daily Mail got hold of this story because it was published in an official PlayStation magazine somehow. Where did they get the photo? Yeah, well, that was another bit. So I think that they, I think they must have had a relationship with someone on the product marketing team in the central office, and they, they called up and asked if they had pictures of the event. So someone inadvisedly supplied them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I actually know who that was. So in the audience today is Simon Byron, the esteemed uh, PR executive. It was it was your sister, right? Carly Byron, who later worked for Sony, right? Yeah, well, she did work for Sony at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. She didn't put that on a CV, funny enough. 
So, th- so the official PlayStation magazine is pulped because it's just gone to press, and you're like, not the whole magazine. They just tore pages. They tore physically. Tore I think the they. Pages. Well, I think what they tend to do these circumstances, and probably Simon can testify to this. They would basically hire a warehouse full of old ladies with a scalpel who would go through every single issue and remove the offending pages. So people would get the magazine. They were like, Dad, why does it go from page five to page nine? Right, right. And that's why. What kind of stink did it kick up at PlayStation? Did you get anyone from Japan calling you up? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, we did. I mean, obviously, as you possibly expect, it did have worldwide ramifications. But, um, you know, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> people were uh, obviously concerned about it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not a nice thing to be accused of. I don't think it was, I mean, that picture doesn't look great, does it? I don't think it was as bad as it was portrayed, shall I say. I mean, the whole concept that, you know, that we had actually killed the goat. Right. And that we were inviting media to eat its warm entrails. Yeah, that was the implication, wasn't it? Was the direct implication of the press release stroke invite that was sent out. Uh, that was obviously far from the truth. Yeah, but yeah. I wasn't there. I couldn't actually tell you. Yeah, yeah. What did you say on the... So you're at this wedding. You're at four weddings and a funeral. Yeah. You have to run out. Yeah. Take this call from the Daily Mail. Does anyone know any just cause or impediment? <laughs> Excuse me, I've just got to take this call. Yeah, yeah, what did you say? Well, I mean, what did I say? I can't really remember, to be honest with you. I mean, I told the, my interpretation of it, which was that, you know, that there were no animals killed at RBS. Uh, a butcher had supplied the carcass, and the food was supplied by catering, so, you know, there was a lot of smoke and mirrors. It was quite hard, as I say, because I chose not to participate in it. And, and you've got to clean up the mess. Then I had to clean up the mess, yeah. 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 So it's just one of those things that they throw at you, the old curveball you get occasionally. When you said the worst, uh, when, you, when you opened this piece, talking about the worst incident, here we go. I, uh, I didn't think this was it. <laughs> go on then. What, was, what, did, what, did you, what did you think I was going to ask? Well, I don't know. I mean, there, there were a few, obviously, because uh, we were kind of fair game, weren't we, really? At the time, videos were the great sort of demonised subject matter for lots of our tabloid media. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I suppose the, the Sony hack was probably, I mean, it wasn't quite as exciting as this, but that was something that uh, did take up a lot of time and cause a lot of consternation. Yeah. And was the largest hack in history until, uh, until not so long ago. So it's still, every time there was another hack, everyone would say, oh, this is the biggest hack since the Sony hack. So this is when a hacker group got some, did they get actual credit card details from Sony PSN users? Or? We didn't believe so, actually, no, right. not at all. I mean, that, they, um, you know, we could see evidence that someone had been in the system and where they had gone, and we had no evidence that anything had been actually taken, mm. but the legal advice that we had was that we should, you know, we should err on the, on the, we should err on the side of caution and, you know, advise people to be, to be vigilant yeah, sure. and to watch out for any unusual activity. Yeah. But I don't think that I, I'm not aware of any evidence that anything adverse actually happened. Right. So, I mean, you know, that's us trying to be honest. Actually, yeah. I mean, if you sort of probably kept Sturm, we would have been all right, right? Sure, but, sure. But the legal advice and the sensible thing probably was to say, guys, you know, be careful. Yeah. Someone has been in the system and they had access to this data. We've got no evidence that anything has been taken or downloaded, but just be careful. But of course, as soon as you say that, it's like, oh my God, how many users have you got? Millions, 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 right? right. So it was, you know, yeah, yeah. dutifully uh, reported as the, the biggest ever commercial hack. Yeah. I suppose that's more of an external attack, whereas the goat thing was a bit more self-inflicted. Well, but then I thought maybe you talked about the... Uh, oh, do I want to bring this up? Uh, when we were accused of being somehow um, a communications device for the uh, Bataclan shootings at Paris. 
Oh, gosh. Uh, keep it light. Yeah, I know. You, you don't want to make light of it. It was absolutely horrific. But there was a story. Well, I can tell you exactly how it happened, actually, which is quite an interesting and insightful episode, if you don't mind me saying so myself. Sure. Well, the European, the Belgian, I think at the time, with um, what was happening with IS, there were more people in Belgium per capita who were going to serious join IS than in any other European state. So a European, an EU... Uh, forum did an interview with the Belgian deputy prime minister, who was also like the security minister, and he was just talking about the challenges of you know internal security and monitoring dubious activity. And he said, I think rather flippantly, that the diff- most difficult device to monitor was the PlayStation Four. And it w- and the presenter kind of went, just laughed and said, "Oh, the PlayStation, yeah." And that was that. Was that. that was Jay? So he, he was implying that maybe the attacks were coordinated on voice chat or whatever. I guess he was just talking about the challenges in general of, of internal security and monitoring communications devices. Sure, yeah. But he said, uh, on the basis of what someone must have said to him, was that the people community, communicating on a PlayStation was one of the hardest channels to monitor. Sure, uh, which is true. Which is fine, because if you remember the, the London... Sorry, I'm not bringing this down a bit, so I won't with the subject matter. The London terrorist attacks, I think BlackBerry was implicated, wasn't it, because it was encrypted messaging, and that was a device... You know, everyone pilloried the, their systems and all the rest of it. And people came after... People were looking, I suppose, for some sort of, not a scapegoat exactly, but people were trying to understand something that was fairly incomprehensible. And this guy makes this flippant comment on the Tuesday before the attacks happened on the Friday. And uh, it gets into the Flemish press first. Right. And then eventually finds its way to the English-speaking press, like on the Thursday. The attacks happen Friday. Saturday morning, the press are out saying, Belgian Prime Minister says that PlayStation was used as a communication device. And so that was uh, that was really surrendous thing, yeah, to be accused of. Well, uh, oh, just quickly going back to goats, then did did that have any lasting? Please, let's go back to goats. Did that have any like lasting effect in terms of how you ran campaigns and things like that? Were there any changes in policy internally at Sony as a result? Yeah, I think anything that uh, backfires like that is a serious learning, right? So I mean, sure, yeah, I think there was a lot more diligence going forward in terms of you know, how events might appear on paper and how they might actually be perceived by other parties. Right. outside of context. Yeah. Yeah. Right, David, the premise of the podcast is I've asked you to pick the five video games that you would like to put on your perfect, idealised, fictional games console. Uh, you have picked five wonderful games, quite an obscure one to start with, so let's uh, start that. Do you want to tell us, yeah, what is, what's your first choice and why do you love it? Excellent. My first choice, actually, is a game called Advanced Lawnmower Simulator, which was written by a good friend of mine, a guy called Duncan MacDonald, when I worked on Your Sinclair. And obviously, the Codies, Codemasters at the time, were making thousands of Spectrum games on cassettes called Advanced BMX Simulator, Advanced Jet Ski Simulator, Advanced blah, blah, blah. And so Duncan, who was a hugely talented writer and a very mischievous person, created this for our cover tape, and yeah. we reviewed it, I think, possibly around April the 1st. Look at that. It's just a work of art. Can we just turn it down slightly? Just the... for, for listeners at home, this is the sound of the, the lawnmower man, you know, mowing the lawn, essentially. So this was a, a cover disc game that was... Was it an April Fool's? A cassette. Uh, yeah, we actually said the... Um, we did review it and gave it a YS mega star, the biggest score we possibly could give <laughs> in the mag, for obvious reasons. Uh, it's funny actually seeing the lawnmowers at that, because the other thing was, um, look at that. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Golden days, aren't they? I saw the range of lawnmowers at the front end, and um, I'm sure one was called a Campari Grassfucker. I think we must have censored that. I had a conversation with Theresa Morn, who was the publisher, teaser, was the publisher of Your Sinclair, and I'm, I'm sure one was called the Campari Grassfucker, but they must have changed as the Turf Master. Right. I don't know. That's, that's, yeah, it must have been censored. But anyway, that was a, a charming piece, much imitated, actually. Yeah. Uh, funny enough, a friend from Sony sent me a, an actual PS PlayStation version that someone must have Really? So what, was, so what was the response from readers? Because it's this disc, they, the cassette they get for free. Yeah. I can try it out. Did they think it was a serious thing? They loved it. Yeah. Don't they? They loved it. Yeah, no, I think, I, I think the whole premise of the magazine was about a sort of cult of characters and everyone, you know, was sort of slightly embellished in terms of their characters and their foibles. And, yeah. you know, that's, that was the whole editorial uh, style and the readers loved that as far as I'm aware and responded really, really well to it. Yeah. So tell me, how did you, how did you end up at Dennis Publishing then? So you, what were you studying at the University of Exeter? Yeah, I don't really like to talk about that. I kind of got into the Spectrum with a friend of mine, lots of drunken evenings uh, playing brilliant Spectrum games, and I had aspirations probably to get into journalism, and I used to read Your Sinclair, and it was, well, Your Spectrum as it was back in the day, and I really liked the humour, and I liked the style of it, and a job came up, uh, which I applied for, production editor, for which I seriously would be ill-suited to do, and I didn't get it. Oh, you didn't? No. Uh, a lady called Jackie Ryan got that, which she was infinitely better suited for the role than I was. Subsequent to that, they had another... Oh, they gave me a task to do for that, uh, which was like a subbing a galley or something, and I probably lost it on a train, I think. Wait, we should explain these terms. So a galley is like a, you know, a page printout before it goes to the printers, and when you say subbing, you mean checking. Good situation. Yes, yes, sorry, right. I'm assuming a level of editorial knowledge of perhaps... Uh, isn't universal. Yes, exactly that. So it, it looks like a page of the magazine, effectively, but uh, a proofreader would, uh, a sub-editor would go through it and, you know, make, spot any mistakes and, and change any copy or get rid of any sort of, you know, funny things like words that hang over the edge of a paragraph or something, widows and things like that, as they're called. So, yeah, I was given an exercise to do that and I took it back to my parents' place in South Wales and left it on the train on the way back. So I had to go in with a sort of, dear, I'll get my homework type. I didn't, that's why I didn't get the job, probably. It didn't work out very well. So when I applied for the second role there, I mocked up this fake cover of Your Sinclair, uh, which nice. had like cut out of Charles Atlas, with my face, as a, a new, improved David Wilson. And uh, I had like a sort of, you know, a kind of, um, yeah, what do they call those sort of, uh, those sort of, mystery uh, cartoons, which was the story of my mis- disappearing uh, exercise, which disappeared on a train. And I had it abducted by aliens. And, all this sort of oh, nice. and weirdly, that's, uh, that did the job. I mean, who knew? So I ended up getting that role. Yeah, I think that shows that you, you got the job that you were better suited for. <laughs> Evidently. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Very nice. And then, yeah, so this is the late 80s. What, what, what year did you join? I joined in, um, do you know, I think it was the end of 88. Right, okay. So, so, you know, there have been video games for magazines for a few years, but it's still like the teenage years, really. It's young and experimental. Yeah. What, what was the model for you for what kind of magazine you wanted to create? Were you looking at like the music press or were you just trying to find your own way? We had um, a really, funny enough, it was Duncan's sister, but Duncan's sister, Vicky, uh, had worked on Smash Hits 
And I think that was like a hugely influential magazine for uh, for several people uh, on it, not least the publisher and the art director and various people. So that was like a, a title that I think we sort of like to emulate in terms of the style and the bands and all the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, it was surreal. I mean, it was fabulous and surreal. I mean, I think the first thing I had to do, I was asked to put on a diving suit for a photo shoot competition. Amazing. They secreted a banana around my person. Uh, right. And the whole notion was that the readers had to spot the banana in order to win the prize. So, yeah, that was, that was, a, that was like literally, I think it was either my first or second day. And I thought, okay, that's, yeah, that's the style of uh, my responsibilities as I see them. They don't make games makes like that anymore, do they? What, uh, so yeah, what distinguished your Sinclair? For, well, what was your main rival, I suppose? What did you see? There's a lot of intermag rivalry on games press, right? So what was your main competitor? Um, well, I guess it would probably would have been Sinclair user at EMAP. I mean, yep. as, a, as a direct uh, simple Sinclair-focused uh, title, that was probably the one that we most watched most closely. And obviously, like, local rivalry with uh, another London-based publisher. Right. Um, but, I mean, obviously, we kept an eye on, well, I was going to say Ace, which is multi-format, but also was an EMAP title. So there were titles that, uh, that we watched quite closely, but I think, you know, we obviously felt the Spectrum domain was ours. And uh, Sinclair User was probably the one that encroached most into that area. When you get to the 90s, like, you know, there's all the stories of the press trips and extravagance and all like that. Was, it, were you, was this before all of that? Did you have, because it's the time of, you know, British bedroom coders really sending their games in. Did you ever get to, did you get to go abroad or anything? I went to Leeds once. <laughs> I went to see Vector Graphics and they, um, they took us to a pub at lunchtime. And uh, they left me too. They all bought their own stuff and I was left there. So I was like, stupidly, naive sort of person who lived in London saying, oh, what would you recommend? And they recommended something and it was basically like a pork pie uh, covered in uh, mushy peas. Lovely. Anyway, that was my last. So, I mean, it was fine. It's good. I don't stand on ceremony. But I think I moved to PR and missed out because the later years when I, was, I had friends at PC Zone, I freelance for PC Zone, but when I uh, had friends there, they were like going swanning off to Vegas and sure. Chicago and everyone. I'm like, what? I mean, we, if I got a trip to see Ubisoft or something in, or Delphine or something in Paris, that was like, that was the highlight of my year. Sure. Yeah. Normally it would be, yeah, Leeds. Leeds and Runcorn. Runcorn. I went to Runcorn. I shouldn't tell this story. Well, I'm not going to say who was involved. I went to visit a developer at Runcorn and uh, I got to the station and like there was no one there to meet me, which they'd said there would be. So then I got a taxi because I knew the address of where the studio was. So I went to the studio. I walked around. It was like this big industrial building shared with a, no one was there. I eventually had to knock on some company's door and ask if I could use the phone, pre-mobile phone kids. Uh, and um, I woke up the studio head and was like, obviously I'd just woke it up. And he said he'd come and meet me. So we, we met up and then he took me to the office, opened the door and there was like pizza boxes, socks, and sleeping bags. And he quickly shut the door and said, uh, let's do lunch first. Have you done lunch? So I'm like, yeah, okay, let's do lunch first. That's fine. So then he took me uh, out uh, in his um, car and he said, you know, oh, what do you fancy? French, Italian? And I thought, blimey, this is very shishi uh, for Runcorn. And I was like, you know, I don't mind. I'm happy with Italian. So he took me to Pizza Hut. <laughs> very good. Right, okay, let's come to your second game then. So this is from 1988. So the you joined. You're Sinclair. Uh, tell us about this one. Uh, yeah, this is a Spectrum game, isn't it? Yeah, there you go. Oh, this is a funny... I mean, you, you see, you start this premise by saying... Wait, you have to say what it is. Oh, I have to... Well, I'll, I'll get there. <laughs> okay. Well, I was just going to say... Oh, I see it's going to roll, right? Okay, this is a game called The Muncher from Gremlin Graphics. I think it was originally called T-Rex, 
W-R-E-C-K-S, and it was subsequently licensed to the Muncher that was the star of a Chewitz advert. Um, the whole premise was that this dinosaur would emerge from the sea and eat loads of different buildings, and in the advert they gave it a packet of Chewitz to save the local uh, infrastructure from destruction. Chewitz were more tasty than, uh, I want to say Thapton, but it wasn't, was it? It was some bus garage anyway, some depot somewhere in the bowels of East England somewhere. Anyway, uh, I love this game. I mean, I guess it's probably not dissimilar to things like King of the Monsters and stuff, but it's, um, it's just brilliant, you know? It's like Godzilla movies come to life. It's a dinosaur. He walks around. He eats people. He smashes helicopters. He climbs buildings. He lays eggs on the roof, which then become your start point for when you... Uh, it's very well animated. It's, it's fab, isn't it, for a Spectrum game? I had, Giant a, Sprite. I had it on a 128K Spectrum, actually. See, he's eating the helicopter there. It's amazing. I love this game. And, uh, sorry, what I was saying was, you talk about games that mean something to you in terms of your life and everything else around you, rather than, like, the best games, because I guess, if you said the best games, everyone chooses the same stuff, right? Sure. Whereas this and the two I've chosen thus far possibly aren't in the gaming hall of fame, but, uh, you know, they were, like, super cool back in the day, and I really enjoyed playing. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So let's jump forward a little bit. Um, so you, you, you leave your Sinclair and you start freelancing for some uh, national publications. And then at some point you join EA. Do you remember your, your interview? What kind of reputation did EA have at that time? Oh, it's the best. I mean, this was like, I mean, obviously people probably think of EA now in terms of iterations and, you know, uh, FIFA 24, if Electronic Arts FC 24, whatever it's called now. I mean, each iteration of a game. But I was there for the first generation. Yeah. The very first Death Strike on Mega Drive, the first Madden, the first EA Hockey, the first uh, of all of those games. I said Madden, right? Hockey, Madden, on Mega Drive. I mean, all those games. Yeah. Plus, they had some incredibly uh, good BC titles as well. But they were all original first games. And you're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then subsequently, <laughs> H, they did a different version, which is fine. I mean, obviously, it'd make total commercial sense but just imagine that one year when all those come out or over the two-year period those came out and they're all like first iterations you're like this is like the amazing yeah like a real golden era wasn't it did you do you remember the first time you played fifa had that come out by the time you joined i came out after i joined actually and the first title was ea sports soccer i'm gonna say right okay wasn't yeah. it called fifa originally right. in fact i played for england for the 
Yeah, sorry. I was at a company, uh, a studio conference recently, and, and they, we all had to do this icebreaker thing where you had to give an interesting fact about yourself. And I gave two facts. One which we may or may not talk about later, I don't know, about uh, petrifying Buzz Aldrin, the astronaut. But the other one was about um, playing for England. And obviously, my impressive Buddha-like physique, it didn't carry too much credence, but obviously the punchline was that I was playing for England in EA Sports Soccer on the Mega Drive because we didn't have the FIFA Pro license for all the official player names, so I used all the employees' names. Uh, so, yeah, I was in defence for very nice. Did you have good stats? Did you did you put yourself in your team? <laughs> no, I don't think you had much choice, to be honest. I don't think we had more than 11 players. So, right. Because right. we didn't have that many employees. I think I was the 45th employee in Europe. Yeah. So, um, yeah, tell me about... So, you, you mentioned there your story with Buzz Aldrin. Tell me about that. What was what was he doing working with EA at that time? This is the astronaut, obviously, that was... Yeah, hard second man on the moon. He's yeah. a legend. Well... This was the thing, of course. I've just mentioned all the first-party amazing games they did. But actually, I was employed initially to look after the uh, affiliated label games. So it wasn't EA-published games. It was third-party third, Oh, second part. Oh, well, second, third-party. Yeah, third-party titles. So uh, publishers who exist in the US and their own right, and EA would publish them in Europe. Right. So companies like Interplay back in the day, 360, which is a strategy game creator, People of that ilk. And so Buzz Aldrin was uh, interpolated a Buzz Aldrin's Race into Space game on PC, which had uh, loads of period footage of Walter Cronkite, and it had Buzz giving you sort of hints and tips about which rockets to choose and stuff. But we were fortunate enough to have the great man over to do a press trip uh, at ECTS or something, and I had to look after him. So I rocked up to the airport. I'm like, I've not seen, I've seen pictures of this guy in 1969, wherever they're on the moon. But I haven't, I don't know what he looks like now. So I made a little sign with Buzz Aldrin on it. And like, so, slowly all these people start congregating around me. Like, oh my God, Buzz Aldrin, did he go to the moon? And like, people were all standing around me. And I was like, oh, this is embarrassing. So then I kind of folded over just to say Aldrin. And yeah, it was, I mean, it was great. But I had him in the car. He was lovely. And I was driving sedately down the motorway. Like, you know, there's a full moon. Oh, it's a full moon. And you've been some, there. Yeah, you've literally <laughs> been up there, mate. Some say. No, 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 I'm joking. Um, so, yeah, it was like, it was fantastic. And on the way, after we did all, we did loads of stuff. He was on John Craven's News Round. He's on TVAM and everything. And we did, we had a great time. And after I, um, I had to take him back to the airport. And I thought, I don't know why I thought this. I thought he was going back to the US. Uh, but actually, he was going to Cannes, of course, uh, to the film festival or something. So I took him to the wrong terminal. Uh, and this was the days before they charge you five pounds to drop anyone off, uh, on before you weren't allowed to leave your car outside. So I literally left him, left him on a yellow line outside, ran into the terminal, said, can I just check the flight goes from this terminal? And was told it didn't go from terminal one, it went from terminal four. So I had to drive like a lunatic, otherwise he would have missed his flight, literally around the sort of, um, sort of circumference roads around right, the yeah. aprons and runways of Heathrow to get to terminal four in time to get him onto his flight. And I had a man who had basically been to the moon in 1960s computer technology, gripping onto my dashboard with the whites of his knuckles showing as I drove like a nutter. And I sort of, in a perverse way, that's a claim to fame. Yeah, definitely. And let's come to your third game, David. Tell us about, tell us about this one from 1992, the Super Nintendo. Let's go racing! It's Super Mario Kart Funny Car Madness! Only on Super NES! Turn the track into a giant mud pit! Or burn rubber on ice, wood, or asphalt! Fly! Mix it up for the big boys! See Bowser in his Bigfoot dropping truck! See Yoshi's go-kart really good! Mushrooms, banana peels, turtle shell! Dynamite! Check your rear view and make a mean test! Or go into battle mode and ruin his day! Two speeds! Fast and way too fast! It's two-player!
entire pot on the split screen. Only for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Now you're playing with power. Superpower. Oh, jeez. Wow. I feel like I've eaten too many Haribo. <laughs> So yeah, t- tell us about this game. Yeah, no, I love Mario Kart. I mean, it was uh, it was yeah, so brilliant, such brilliant fun. I mean, so many of I had a huge respect for Nintendo, of course. I mean, everyone does, right? But the games are just so beautiful and so well crafted. But I chose this one obviously rather than a than a Mario World or something because it just again brings back memories of an era and a time and people. Um, I think I bought. I was in the US on a press trip to Origin Systems. I think that might have been when I was in Richard Garriott's Haunted House and I twisted my ankle being chased by demons from the underworld. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, and I literally, I was with a bunch of journalists, funnily enough, including Duncan MacDonald, who was then on PC server. And I think it was the only press trip he probably went on because he didn't like to leave uh, his local area. But he came out with me on that trip, coast to coast, visiting EA Studios. Oh, amazing. And um, I think we ended up, we went... Not in a car. In a car. No, well, no, we, we flew. And right, we okay. rented cars, we flew. But we went to San Francisco to EA. We went to Austin, Texas for Origin. And then we went to New England because we had this, um, these guys making a, a submarine simulator for us. Right. And we visited the studio there. But uh, we were in this tiny little godforsaken town. And the Mario cars had just come out actually on N64. And I literally went to Toys R Us and bought a US N64 purely so we could all play Mario Kart all night. Wow. Uh, in this tiny little motel. It was just, yeah, the best fun. That's amazing. Very nice. Right, so let's come to your move from, from EA then. So you join, you join Sony PlayStation just prior to the launch of PlayStation 2. At this point, Sony PlayStation has proven itself and is the PlayStation 2, I think it's fair to say there was a lot of excitement around about it. What do you remember at that time and, and your interview? Yeah, I... Um I'd watch with great admiration the launch of the first PlayStation. I actually gay crashed their party. I was at EA, but I gay crashed their party, which was in the Sony Pictures lot in uh, LA. And it was mad. Michael Jackson's walking around, Maria Carey's walking around. And he's, oh my God, the games industry's arrived. This is, this is crazy. And it was really, they were really like quite special times anyway. So I figured it was probably a nice thing to have on my CV. Uh, I probably didn't envisage I would stay as long as I did, quite honestly. But I thought, you know, being involved in the launch of PS2 was something that's really, really exciting. You know, there were a lot of naysayers because prior to that time, no uh, market-leading console had owned a second iteration. They had shifted, obviously, different platform holders. So there was quite a lot of naysayers. A lot of pundits were sort of speaking in our esteemed trade periodicals and saying things like, I mean, I remember the the head guy at Sega at the time saying, we'll kick their ass as they run away or something. It's like, oh, damn. American, by the way. I don't know why I did that accent. The challenge was down there and... I felt good about it. Yeah. And there was a lot of talk of the, the emotion engine, which was a sort of, yep. I think in hindsight, it was a genius bit of marketing, really. Yep. Where did, where did that come from? Was that something that your teams came up with, or was it coming from the developers? I think that came from Japan. I think that right. came from Kutaragi-san. And the whole premise was like, will it, you know, can a game make you cry? Right. And you know, the, it was maintaining that this was the system to do it. I'm so trying to find a game that stops me crying, actually. Yes. Yeah, I know. That's the choice of parenthood, isn't it? Um, I cry at everything. Anyway, sorry. Uh, I actually launched the baby PS1 before the PS2, because we did that in September. Uh, right, yeah, the little cute round. Yeah, mini- right, yeah, yeah. We used to throw everything out at PlayStation. I don't know if you're going to ask me this in a minute, but I'm going to tell you. Anyway. Yeah, go for it. We used to have these like sessions. I was, I was out with some friends last night, ex-PlayStation guys, and we were just talking about you know, staffed memorabilia. And funny enough, I heard Ellie on your podcast as well, talking about that Jack and Daxter yeah. artwork. 
we had all this stuff in the office, and like every now and then it's like, right, this office looks like a tip. Throw everything out. Oh, we just chuck everything out. I know, I know, yeah, I know. I'm probably breaking a few hearts, but literally everything went in the bin, including one of those posters from Naughty Dog. Oh, don't tell Naughty Dog. But it was just like this beautiful piece of art signed by everyone. Yeah, just chuck, chuck it out, chuck it out. Wow. And we threw everything out. And when we launched uh, PS4, actually, I know I'm jumping ahead chronologically, forgive me, but I did a, we did an execution, which was like a retro game shop. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is great. Let's fill it with memorabilia and make it look like a little mini museum. And so I thought, great, where's all the memorabilia? Yeah. And we literally had nothing. And I had to <laughs> say that. Bins. Yeah, well, I had to send begging letters out to the whole company saying, has anyone got any like old stuff we can put in this museum i'll borrow it i'll give it back to you and a guy who worked downstairs came up and said oh i've got a ps1 a baby ps1 in the box I'm like, that's amazing and i'm like oh this is fantastic you know how long have you had it you buy it from you he said no no i got it from a skip outside your office <laughs> right uh, i think it's fair to say that around this time there's quite a different approach between the us and the uk pr teams you know the this is slightly earlier, but the uk was hiring david lynch and chris cunningham to direct its advertisements in the u.s it was, it was just a mess, just teenage boy marketing, really, still. Did you feel that tension between what you were trying to do, a bit more, I suppose, uh, artsy-focused and cultural, rather than, you know, the sort of marketing of the 90s, which was very much towards a certain young man de- demographic? You've shown us a startling example of uh, advertising there, which I think some North America. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I think that we were empowered by Japan to do whatever worked best in our markets. And actually, it was a similar proposition at EA as well. It was sell globally, but market locally. Right. And I think that there was the freedom then to, you know, to do whichever creative, advertising, marketing creative that worked best in your market because there was a recognition that cultures were different, people were different, and you know, whatever had to push the right buttons to get people interested in your product, we had the wherewithal, the freedom to do that. I mean, that's changed subsequently because I guess marketing budgets are so huge now. You kind of look at it from a distance commercially and say, there's not a lot of um, justification for, for spending three times creating three different adverts when you can create one and use it. Right, so you try and find one that works globally. Yeah, but back in the day, I mean, yeah, sure. We, you know, like we, we did some brilliant things with, uh, uh, I don't lay claim to it because I was on the PR side, but I mean, we did some brilliant advertising and marketing, which... Uh, we had the freedom to do. Well, I don't think, I don't think it was particularly tension. I mean, I, from a personal perspective, like during the Iraq war, when the Americans tried to trademark shock and awe, that was like something that caused me a few headaches. But yeah, it's different cultural approaches and different appeals. Uh, but no, I don't think there was tension about it. And you got on with the US team, your, your um, equivalents over there? Was that yeah, Ad- no, Andrew's house, was it? Uh, no, it... it Andrew was VP of marketing. Andy was the VP of marketing when I started. Actually, I first met him in October 2000 when I went to the US PS2 launch. Yeah, no, it was, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was, you know, we were in different different spheres. I didn't really have too much to do with him. He did shout at me once, but I love him, actually. That was when he was in the US. Why did he shout to you, David? Uh, yeah, I feel like Boris, like Boris Johnson on Have I Got News or something. Um yeah, he didn't. Um, he, I was dealing with the guys at uh, Gumball, and they had this is the ra- the rally, the rally, yeah, the Gumball rally, and they they'd moved to the US, which was probably a smart thing to do because driving supercars through the most impoverished part of Eastern Europe wasn't particularly a good optic. 
Um, so they'd moved to the US where conspicuous consumption was much more acceptable. And, you know, you'd launch in New York and you'd finish in the Playboy Mansion or whatever in LA and everyone's having the best time. But they assured me that they'd had dealings with the marketing guys in the US the year before. And they wanted to speak to someone about possibilities for the next year. And so I spoke to an opposite number in sponsorship in uh, the European operation. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, speak to Andy. He's, he, it's his domain. So I'm like, okay, well, the guys are flying today. And he's in bed right now because of time difference. So I kind of gave them his number. And I said, his mobile this is number. the guy you need to, not his mobile number. No, 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 his office number, his office number. But I said, this is the guy you need to deal with. And then I messaged Andy as a courtesy and said, look, I hope you don't mind, but I've given this guy your number. They're coming over. Aaron had had conversation with marketing guys last and he was not best pleased. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? If you don't want to call, just don't take it. But I didn't say that. Thank God. Thank God I didn't say anything rude. Uh, but yeah, no, it was, um, it, yeah, it was a back and forth. You patched things up. Yeah, yeah. No, I really like Andy a great deal, actually. And it was really good fun working with him when he was a European president and when he was the global president. Uh, we had some Right, let's come to your fourth game there, which is a PlayStation 2 game, so very apt, from 2004. Uh, tell us, what, give us the name and then we'll watch the thing. Which, like, I'll, put, I'll just put it on. You can control speed. You can control direction. You can control everything except your fellow man. The Gran Turismo 4. Yeah, I love Gran Turismo. What's not to like? I love cars, you see, and I love Gran Turismo, and the team there are fantastic, and I have uh, a lot of affection for them. Actually, they're great guys and very talented. I was trying to get clues as to which game it was when you said 92, because I was thinking, when did which which? Because there's so many Gran Turismos, of course. Um, but yeah, no, I many, many hours spent playing that game. As I say, as a total petrol head, it's something that super appeals to me. Uh, it's funny it says that thing about uh, professional driver in a yeah, environment. Yeah. So on the ad, just for listeners, it's, it had a little message at the bottom of the footage saying, uh, yeah, professional driver on a closed uh, course, do not try this at home. And then it switches quite seamlessly to yeah. game footage, which holds up. Like Considering that was 2004, it looks pretty Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah, it absolutely does. Well, you know, that was a challenge, actually, because back in the day when you did a computer game, a car game, on, on a car computer game, You'd go to the magazines and try and get a cover or whatever, and they were like, yeah, yeah, they'd put the cover on, you know, back in the day, whatever, hour round, whatever, you put it on the cover. But when the games actually start looking like photographs of real cars, yeah. people don't want to look like a car magazine, they want to look like a games magazine. So like, yeah, we don't want to put that on the cover because it just looks like a photograph. It's like, yeah, but it's real graphics, they look amazing. Yeah, no, but it just looks like a car. So it was challenging. But um, no, what made me laugh about that little thing, that little rider about the live footage at the start, uh, being a professional driver in an enclosed circuit is that we launched, um, I wonder, it might have been GT5 actually, but we launched that in Madrid. And we had professional, we did it like in the town hall in Madrid. Right. And we had professional drivers taking like media guests around the Madrid circuit, which debuted in that game in GT5. And they drive us around the circuit like lunatics. And it wasn't, they were professional drivers, but it wasn't a closed circuit. I mean, I was literally like sideways in a GTR going down mm -hmm. the Gran Via. And there's some bloke like delivering pizzas and things like on a moped. <laughs> I mean, it was the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life. Got the Daily Mail on the phone. Don't tell her Daily Mail, please. 
And um, yeah, we happened to be talking at the time when Groucho's Way film from Sony Pictures is in cinemas. You feature in it. Tell us how that came about. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I apparently I'm told because I haven't, I've been away for a few weeks, but I was told that um, when the, when they're discussing which racing coach to employ uh, to teach young Yan, who's lovely, lovely guy from Cardiff, whose life we changed with that GT Academy thing. Amazing. Yeah, uh, he's a player of the game who ends up becoming yeah, a professional sorry, yeah, racing car driver. Spoiler alert. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, so the film tells the story of GT Academy, which was a collaboration with PlayStation and Nissan. Loads of people over the years have come to me and go, oh, let's take a, you know, car magazines. Let's take a gamer and put him in a real car. And, you know, so it wasn't like maybe an original idea, but it had never been really done properly. And there was that awful program. Sorry, it was a good program. There was a good program on TV. I can't remember, I can't remember what it was called. When they take people and try to pass them off, faking it, faking it. Faking it. They'd take like a, a, a house painter and try to turn him and pass him off as a fine artist. Right. And there was an episode in there where they got a guy who I think was a rock star employee and tried to pass him off as a race car. And he was embarrassingly bad. Yeah, he, and didn't he crash into someone? He got loads of trouble. He was dreadful. And like literally, I mean, I remember the Guardian reviewed the uh, program and said this only works when you're rooting for the person to succeed. Right. And this episode proved them totally wrong because you, this bloke was such. Yes, he wasn't very <laughs> endearing, shall we say? He was really cocky and he was literally terrible. And he obviously failed to to pass the test and fake it. And literally, when he was like about to leave, they're all going through gritted teeth. It's like, oh, he's gone. And then his car broke down. They all to go and bump start his car. It was just terrible. And uh, but that so wasn't the case with GT. That was the previous example of a gamer, because he yeah. was a gamer, trying to be a racing driver. So GT Academy turned that on its head, as far as I was concerned, because we got really brilliant, talented drivers, and then we took them into Nissan's racing uh, program and gave them like proper tuition and training and everything else, and entered them into proper races to get their driving license. Yeah. And, you know, literally it changed the lives. Lucas was the first guy from Spain. Jan was, uh, was from Cardiff. And he, he think he's now racing in Super GT in Japan. But, you know, amazing. Yeah, incredible. And how are you in it? Oh, in the film? Oh, I'm sorry. God, I forgot sidetracked. Well, apparently when the character who plays Jan is, uh, they're trying to find a racing coach for him. And they have a list of prospective uh, racing coaches, top drivers, to teach him the ropes. Yeah. And most of them are kind of dismissive of the idea of a gamer becoming a racing driver. And the last one on the list, the penultimate one on the list is, is my name. And they cross it out and they employ Luke Slater. Very so nice. I didn't quite make the cut, but perhaps Brad Pitt wasn't available. I don't know. And you are you are also in the most recent one, aren't you? GT Seven. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, well, I was. I mean, embarrassingly, it was after I left Sony, but they did um, one of their conferences debuting the new products, and they unveiled the brand new trailer for GT Seven, which looks amazing. And they had a scene from the, some people send me these things. I'm blissfully unaware of, sure. but uh, someone sent me a screen grab of it. A journalist sent me a screen grab of it, and on the Tokyo Expressway, there was a big hoarding with uh, David Wilson classic cars on it, which I was supremely touched by, actually. It's really sweet that they put that in. Sadly, a few people thought I actually did have a car dealership and were offering me professional advice and stuff. Yeah. That's it's still time. Only in the virtual world. So let's, let's whisk forward then. So PlayStation 3 comes out, and there are some great games on PlayStation 3, but it's perhaps not the roaring success. It's a little difficult to, notoriously difficult to develop games for, isn't it? And uh, so... I would say loses a fair bit of market share to Xbox. The difficult time. third album. Right, yeah, yeah. What, uh, at what point are you aware that things aren't going so well uh, for PlayStation 3? 
Well, I mean, we were we were aware, you know, we would obviously, we'd have like meetings every week and sort of see the sales numbers of ourselves and our competitors. So, you know, we knew it was like a big fight. It was a struggle. Price point was high. So yeah, it was it was it was challenging, but um, you know it wasn't a disaster. Of course, I mean it still did very well for itself. But uh, yeah, we lost we lost a bit of ground. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, you know PlayStation Four comes along and changes the you know flips that again. Um, you know, to what degree were you involved in you know the push to really change the narrative about how Sony had lost its way? Yeah, no. I, the PS4 launch was amazing. I mean, everything. I mean, it's, you know, you get these things where everything just comes together. Serendipity. I mean, funny enough, no, I won't bore you with that one. I was going to talk about a launch we did, funny enough, for, I think it probably was GT4, in a NCP car park in Soho. And, yeah, I was inviting people to an NCP car park in Soho, and they were like, you're looking at me askance, like, are you mad? But we filled it with 40 or 50 cars from the game. Yeah. But loads of things went wrong during the night, like the generator broke, and right. all the lights dimmed. And just at that point, the guy that ran a TVR at the time started it up and exploded flames. Everything looked choreographed. I mean, everything was going wrong, but everything yeah. looked choreographed. So sometimes those things happen, right? It's serendipity. And that's but, kind of what... Do you mean it actually caught fire, the car, or it just came no, out no. of the exhaust? No, it was like a proper GT1 race car. But it looked like the fact that the MC had suddenly stopped talking mid-sentence and all the lights had gone out. <laughs> And then this car sort of burst into spectacular life. It looked like it had all been sort of staged and choreographed, but it was it rushes away from disaster. And um, yeah, it's the same, uh, the opposite, I guess, happened with the PS4 launch because almost everything, you know, almost everything that just seemed to go right went right. And all the way through the steps that our competitors took and, you know, even things like the, the famous um, Yoshida-san thing and Adam, when they were doing the, they handed the game, how you, how you loan games on, where you lend your friends games or basically yeah. that little little impromptu video which was something that it was like really, a dig at the Xbox DRM it was a gentle joke at their expense yeah but I mean that sort of thing we would we would never we weren't doing in those sort of days so even just a little thing like that which yeah. had they probably asked permission they might not have got sanctioned to do it yeah. but little plays like that just really you know just won so much like hearts and minds in the, in the community I think really because there was a bit of anger about what had been going on before. So, yeah. yeah, everything that fell into place really, really nicely. One of the most famous images from that time was when you took over the OXO Tower on the River Thames and turned the iconic OXO into the PlayStation symbols. How easy was that to do? You know, it was, there was a lot of debate internally as to how we should approach it. Um, and again, this is serendipity, right? This is like the luck. I mean, we had a great machine at a brilliant price point and we had a good lineup. And everything, you know, all the, all the stars were aligned. But there's still so many things that could go wrong, right? And uh, we'd had some kind of insight from um, research from uh, marketing guys about the significance of the symbols and bringing the symbols back and how we'd kind of, in, in PS3 era, we'd lost the playground, literally and metaphorically, places where people play because, you know, you might have an affinity to PlayStation maybe because of your parents, but once you get to school, your mates will got Xboxes and you want the system they've got. So it was about sort of recapturing, you know, our legacy and what we were about. And the symbols were like a brilliant encapsulation of that. So there were different propositions on the table and there were different voices with different opinions. I mean, there was a, yeah, we had a big battle actually to get that away because... From the City of London or from other other people in? Internally, actually. Yeah, internally there was, um, because we knew our, 
US colleagues were spending a lot of money on projection mapping a skyscraper in New York, and our execution was not dissimilar. But to me, that was the appeal. I mean, it, would, it was synergistic, for want of a really much better word, but it just, it just mirrored their execution perfectly. And to have that happening on both sides of the Atlantic at the same time, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, there were voices in, um, in our central HQ were like, you can't do it, you'll ruin the Americans' launch. And it's like, they've been shaved, David. <laughs> All these people, I, I love them. Yeah, I love them, Rachel. I'm joking. No, um, no uh, basically it was, yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, it's, yeah. But I, it's, I use it as an illustration of how things could have gone really a different direction. Because also we had a big debate about our brand space, which yeah. in the end we had in Covent Garden. It was a fantastic location. It was great. It drew lots of all sorts of people. I mean, we had events there with musicians. We had uh, celebrities and sports stars dropping in. and It was a very cool location. But we did look at one venue that was in the corner of Leicester Square, the old Trocadero building, which yeah. was well past its heyday. And it was an old disused cinema with a really sticky floor and loads of pillars all around so you couldn't really see through it. Right. And that could have been our brand space. And right. the whole cell was, oh my God, there's a marquee outside, like a cinema. You could have PlayStation 4 launch when Andy House comes over from Japan. It's going to be amazing. Thank God we didn't do that. Can you imagine? Because that's the square, the lesser square, the Xbox, the whole square for their launch. Oh, and we'd be in the shonky corner in the sort of sticky Ford cinema. It'd be like, yeah, that would have. So, yeah, it's, you know, like often these things, there's obviously uh, success has many fathers and failure as an orphan. But there's, you know, there are often things that go right and are amazing, but it could so easily have, have really taken the tarnish off it, put yeah. a tarnish on it, taken the shine off it. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Fascinating. Lots more we could talk about there, but we better come to your fifth and your final game, David. So let's watch the trailer for this and then you can tell us about it. Very exciting game, this. Well, this is Bloodborne, basically. Uh, from software, Miyazaki-san. I love the Souls games. I love, I love. I just remember, and this goes right back to the spectrum. Buying a game and spending about a week trying to get off level one because they were so hard, and it was just like frustrating. And the challenge was amazing. And these these games, like obviously old school hard. It's just, I mean, look at it. Sumptuous gothic graphics. It's just, I love it. That is really great. And um, yeah. It was a pleasure to work on this one, that's for sure. I might have seen it in the lineup for one of our presentations because at that point in the proceedings, I was mainly shadowing um, uh, the president, the European president, or whoever it was. 
because I went from the UK to the European side. So I was working around um, uh, doing more corporate stuff at this time rather than more product based because we had a team looking after the software. But um, yeah, no, I mean, a lot of the games then which we had privileged access or sight of before, obviously they were debuted in public, were just looked amazing. So yeah, there's so many really that kind of made a sort of really um, huge impact on me. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel about Knack? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I like Knack. I mean, I don't know. There's, there's, I, listen, I la- we, launched, we launched PS2 with Fantavision, for God's sake. Uh, so it didn't do any harm. Right? And like Mark, Mark Cerny's a gentleman as well. He's so they're just, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, I like Knack, but um, I guess there were probably more appealing games in the like Right, David, let's go through your console then. So we've got here uh, Advanced Lawnmower Simulator, The Muncher, uh, Super Mario Kart, Gran Turismo 4, and lastly, of course, Bloodborne. Very fine console. Right, we need a name to market this to the world. This is your your area. What should we call this? <laughs> yeah, I... Um, I feel really bad. I never wrote back to this kid who sent me a design for a Sony handheld once. Uh, and he called it the Brendan, I think it was the Brendan, Brandon Sinclair 2000. Uh, wish I had a bit of little magic in there because I had to spec the, the Sinclair name in it as well. Yeah. But um, it did look a lot like a Vita. But anyway, I think it possibly came after or between the Vita and the PSP. But anyway, it looked like something that we had already created. But it was so, it, you used to get lovely letters from kids. Yeah. You used to get quite irate letters, irate letters from people as well. Was that his name then, Brandon? I assume that was his name, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, uh, probably, a, simple, that's probably a GDPR breach there, David. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Maybe I should... Uh... No, Brandon Sinclair, what was it? 3,000? I think it was a 2,000. 2,000. There we go. Right. Brilliant. Okay. The Brown and Sinclair 2,000. Very nice. I might have to pay him some royalties for that. <laughs> right. Great. Just before I let you go then, David, thank you so much for this bit more of a serious question so you know you started out as a journalist and um all through the 90s and the early 2000s you were working with journalists then then these days i think at some point it switched a bit more to being influencers of the people that companies like sony and netties and other big companies want to deal with who i think it's fair to say can be a bit more easily controlled than journalists who are broadly free to write where they want you know obviously that's a good thing for for companies trying to promote their games what do you think's lost by by that, perhaps the the decimation of the games media e- industry as it is. Uh, I think it's I think it's moved a little bit back. Actually, I mean, there's no disputing the influence of influencers, but they are you know they're a little bit they're a different genre to professional journalists and games journalists, of course. And with that comes some uh, kind of be carefuls, I guess. We used to do. A, um, a really cool it, well it goes back to that thing about recapturing the playgrounds we did a grassroots football initiative in the UK called PlayStation Schools Cup which we did with English Schools FA and that was like a really lovely project to work on we had done uh, our sponsorship manager Carl Christopher did a Schools Cup way back in the day for PS2 but we reinvigorated it for PS3 end of the PS3 era uh, and it basically we supported this tournament we went into schools uh, we would take like a Premier League player into a school local to the team he played for. So, you know, obviously the kids were usually like really aware of who he was and fans and all the rest of it. And then we would um, 
you know, he'd do something for kind of maybe the more academic kids, the less sporty kids, like they do like media interviews with him and stuff like that. Right. We would bring in media to interview him and then we'd get him out on the team with the school team doing things. And we would do sampling. And I really didn't want to kind of like presume to take the sampling into the school. I thought that was probably a little bit uh, inappropriate because I felt it was just a really obvious sort of commercial, you know, trying to, I wasn't trying to sell things and push it on school kids' thought, throats, but actually the schools wanted us in the school because they used it as a device to, to, as a reward device. So the best kids got to come and use the sampling facilities and all the rest of it. And they liked the school being associated with a big brand. So uh, yeah, that all worked out really nicely. I'm sorry, this is a really convoluted story. But we'd had on this one occasion, I think it was Juan Mata, and he was at Manchester United at the time. And we had uh, Soccer AM go in. We had a bunch of like mainstream media, uh, but we had um, Spencer FC come along as well. Right. And it was revelatory to me, basically, because we had recognisable media, sports bandits, yeah. came in to do some of the interviews and this kid sort of hardly batted an eyelid. Then we had um, Soccer AM guys come in, and again, you know, they're a bit more recognition. Yep. But when Spencer FC turned up, the kids went mental. Yeah. They're more mental than for the footballer. Right. Due respect to Juan Mata, who's delightful. Yeah. But the kids went crazy. Yeah. And it was like, oh my God. Yeah, that was the power of the influencers in the day. Yeah. So, sure, I mean, that, that shifted the whole uh, landscape for uh, PR. But having said that, you know, I think there's a recognition in terms of, um, I mean, there were a few instances where people got their fingers burnt as well by, you know, really investing in a certain influencer, then did something a little bit irresponsible and, you know, lost all their sponsorship. So you've got to be a bit smart about how you work with those people and who you work with. But that then reflects better on traditional games journalists. So I think it's a happy medium, actually, between the two spheres. So I think it's shifting back again a little bit in favour of of coexisting with both parties. Well, that's heartening to hear. So. <laughs> well, you might like that. Brilliant. Well, David, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for doing this, because I know, um, well, you know, people in PR don't want to be the story, do they? So thank you for being the story for an hour with us. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. I mean, yeah, I was a bit baffled why you'd want to speak, because we're not used to being spoken to the PR people. We usually hover in the background. So, yeah, no, it's nice. I mean, I, I don't feel like I've ever, um, as someone rudely pointed out on my social media recently, uh, I don't feel like I've ever kind of created anything, but I've bathed in the reflective glory of dealing with lots of really amazingly talented studios and, uh, and games developers. Brilliant. Everyone, give it up for David Wilson. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much to my guest, David Wilson. David, I mean, what an individual with so much experience with has just been at some key companies at some really key moments in their development, in their story. There with EA, right, when they're launching all of these extremely long-running game series. There at uh, Sony for the launch of the uh, PS1, and then the, as in the, the small little cute PS1, and then of course the launch of the PlayStation 2, all the way through up until uh, just before the PlayStation 5 launch. And of course, David is now at NetEase, something that we didn't get into in that conversation, but that is a whole other conversation. NetEase, the giant very well-funded Chinese publisher and investment company that has been buying up Japanese companies Japanese directors 
you know, they're working with one of the senior developers from or producers from the Dragon Quest series, as well as uh, Goichi Suda, Suda51, the co-founder of Grasshopper Manufacturer, which you'll know for the games in the No More Heroes series. Um, Toshihiro Nagoshi, who you'll know for the Yakuza series, or Like a Dragon, as it's now known. So... Yeah, NetEase, while the rest of the Western video game industry is cutting costs and closing studios and getting rid of staff and all of that stuff, the Chinese investors at uh, Tencent and NetEase are, uh, see, appear at least to be doing the opposite and really spending everywhere. And uh, yeah, David is, is part of that as well. So, um, you know, a telling move, perhaps, that that, uh, that he's with Netties at the moment. Anyhow, we didn't really get into that, but... Uh, and there's so much more I would have liked to have got into him in during that hour. But yeah, scratch the surface, perhaps, and got some good anecdotes. I liked hearing about David at the airport waiting for Buzz Aldrin, and then all the other passers-by seeing his sign and thinking, oh, a chance to meet Buzz Aldrin, and he folds it over, so it just says Buzz... That's that's very, very good, isn't it? Anyway, um, thank you if you came out to the live event. This was at WASD, the event in London. Wonderful uh, indie games event. There were some friendly faces there. Jörg Tittel, who we've a previous podcast guest, was there uh, with his sequel to Cosmic Smash, C-Smash Versus, uh, and it was great to see some other good friends there. I think it's fair to say that we had a few teething problems with this, our first live event. So WSD closed at 6pm. Our event started at 7pm, which meant that people had sort of gone out and got a drink and then had to come back. And it was a different door that they had to come in to the one that they'd exited out of. So some people who had tickets couldn't find where to go and had to get refunds and um, if that was you, you had a ticket, you were unable to get in, just get in contact and we can sort out a refund for you. Um, but those of you who did uh, complete the quest and find a seat at the event, thank you so much for coming. It was uh, it was great to have you. And if we do another one of these, yeah, we've learned some lessons. It'll be smoother next time. Maybe we'll do it immediately at the end of the event or earlier in the day or something like that. Um if you would like to hear about any forthcoming live events and, of course, other bits and pieces to do with the podcast, then please head to patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole. There you can become a supporter for just £4.50 or $5 a month. You get your own special podcast feed with episodes that are ad-free and uh, come out early. And you also get bonus content and lots of other bits and pieces. Um, so, yeah, please do come along and join in it's the patrons growing every week uh, pleasingly and it's a lovely community it would be great to have you along as well uh, you can write to me at my perfect console at gmail.com it would be lovely to hear from you say hello let us know uh yeah if there's any guests that you'd like to see coming up um if you, you can also follow us on Twitter, that's twitter.com forward slash myperfectconsole with the O's removed. Uh, if you do head to Twitter, then there's a link there and it's also on the Patreon page as well, where you can go and look at the My Perfect Console spreadsheet. This is online and it's got the list of every single guest we've had on the show, their picks and everything. If you head there, there's a tab at the bottom that says most selected games. Let me tell you what those are at the moment. So looking at them. 
Uh, way out in front, we've got Disco Elysium, which has been picked more than any other game so far in 2023. In second place, we've got Joint Second between Grand Theft Auto 3 and Minecraft. Uh, and then behind that, we've got the first of the FromSoft games. That is Bloodborne, which, of course, David Wilson picked. So, um, yeah, I haven't mentioned it on here before, but I've actually contributed to a Bloodborne themed book. This is from Tune and Fairweather. This, the, it's a publisher of sort of boutique, very beautiful, very high quality uh, books mostly themed around FromSoft games so they've done one on um, Dark Souls for example um, and yeah this is the Bloodborne book for, from them that's coming out uh, imminently I think certainly before the end of the year um, and yeah it's a collection of essays from some brilliant writers uh, for example Grace Curtis one of my early guests on this has written a piece on Bloodborne Christian Donlan who you I'm sure will know about a good friend of mine who writes for Eurogamer and previous to that for Edge and other places he's written a piece uh, all about Robert Louis Stevenson and um, Frankenstein and the links between that and Bloodborne um, it's beautifully illustrated as well by shim hack who has done loads of bloodborne sort of watercolor illustrations i mean it's a very fine product go along to tune and fairweather you can pre-order a copy or perhaps you can just order one and they'll send it to you right away uh, you should do that it's uh, it's a good thing and if you're a bloodborne fan and why on earth wouldn't you be then uh, it's something that you will want on your bookshelf um, right, so yeah, next week we've got an exciting guest, Lucas Pope. That is the designer of some some of the best regarded independent video games ever released. So Papers, Please, which is often features in the top 10 of the best video games ever made. I think it's been picked by one guest previously. And also The Return of the Obradin, which was picked this month by Pierre Novelli. It's been picked by someone else as well. Maybe Ronan Farrow picked that one. I can't quite remember. Anyway, The Return of the Obradin is an incredible video game that uh, you should also have played if you haven't. And yeah, we've got Lucas Pope on. Lucas is a good get because he is uh, I hope you wouldn't mind me saying he's a little bit reclusive, doesn't give that many uh, interviews. He is from the States but lives in Tokyo and um, yeah, so I managed to pin him down uh, a little earlier in the year and got to got to get him on the show. So yes, um, you should subscribe if you're not already and get that download next week. Um, yeah, it's great to have you. Thanks for listening delve back into the back catalogue if you're a new listener um and yeah we'll be back again with lucas pope next week with his five games and one more perfect console till then goodbye
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.